0: Hello and welcome to May I Have This Dance, a podcast from the Human Awareness Institute or HI among friends.
1: We're here because we love having real, rich, juicy conversations with people. We strip down with the people we interview, figuratively and only sometimes literally, to the undercurrent of what it means to be human through the lens of love, intimacy and sexuality.
0: As an organization, HI is a place to explore and embrace our humanness. Obviously, a podcast can't replace our workshops, but we do hope that in these interviews, you're able to catch a glimpse of who we are and what we do.
1: Shall we get started with the interview?
0: Let's do it. Hello, and welcome back to May I Have This Dance. So today I am interviewing Jason, who is one of the facilitators at HI. Um, Jason is one of my favorite people, and he was one of the first people to really made an impression on me uh, within the Human Awareness Institute. He has a superpower which is if you are facing something really really hard and you're able to get some words together he is able to assimilate those words and reflect back to you your own thoughts and feelings and emotions and and the complexities of the situation in a way that is unlike anything i've ever heard anybody do and this interview is actually a really good example of that we talk about some topics that are really quite complicated and really quite sensitive and He does so in a way that is so filled with curiosity. It is just really beautiful to to witness. And I'm just waffling on now. Let me just hit play on this episode and you guys can see exactly what I mean. Uh, My friend, would you tell me your name and what pronouns you like to use in addition to where in the world you are at the moment?
2: I'm Jason Weston. I use the pronouns he and him and they and them. And I'm talking to you from my home in Lakeport, California, which is rural Northern California, about two hours north of san francisco
0: so the the reason we um, invited you on the podcast jason are are many and varied. For one thing, you 've been a, a facilitator with High for a long time, but i've also gotten to know you personally uh, a fair amount through through working on uh, like being on the workshops together with you. And I find you to be one of the most thoughtful people I have met in a very long time. And I uh, have spoken to a couple of other people who've been at workshops with you. And that seems to be the general piece of feedback I hear about you. Hmm. I would love to start this interview with learning. How did you get that way? How did you learn to listen so well?
2: Well, that's a fascinating question. And and thank you for that uh, lovely reflection. Um, Well, I guess you'd say I grew up in high. I landed in high when I was 19 years old. And from the beginning of high, one of the most cherished values is connecting with other human beings. It's what we do. And a big part of that is listening. And so, yeah, I feel like that's been being baked into my bones for most of my life. I'll say something else, too. And it came up recently in a response I made on Facebook uh, around racism. And a person posed the question, when did you first learn about racism? When I was a kid, my family moved to the town of Santa Maria, California. And when we got there, we landed in a neighborhood that was pretty much all white. And I'm white. And so... Uh, after we had been there about six months, I I was, you know, I don't know, second grade, I think, so seven, eight years old. And after we'd been there for about six months, we moved to another part of town. And there was a black family that lived across the street. And, And I, of course, became friends with the kid who was my own age. His name was Eric. And Eric and I were just friends. We were seven, eight years old. And... And of course, it was obvious to me that he was black, but I didn't really understand what that meant in the bigger context at that time. I was just a kid. I found out later in life that my father had come to know Eric's father, and my father and my my mother were really anti-racist back then, even though we didn't have that label for it. Um, And he didn't want his kids growing up in an all-white neighborhood. And so we moved to that neighborhood as a way of um, having us know and interact and be friends with people who were not white. And that's something that stayed with me, that, um, that, that my, my dad in particular had a really high value on cultivating relationships with people unlike himself in some way. And, and in particular, uh, with, with people of color. Um, and it was sometimes black people, sometimes Asian people, um, sometimes people from the Middle East. But we had, our, our home was always very multicultural in terms of who was there, who our friends were. And so this had a, a big impact on me in terms of um, seeing the value in different people and feeling comfortable in different environments and different cultural environments. And I think kind of a built in feature of that is listening. Like if you're not listening, it's not going to work out. Right. Um, yeah. Because what, what, what your assumptions might be may or may not fit the situation. Yeah. So yeah, I think, I think listening is, um, an essential piece for, for us human beings.
0: I completely agree with that. As you were explaining that, um, especially the earlier part of of that part of the conversation, I felt this pang of envy. Um, I shared a workshop, one of my first workshops, with somebody who was 23 years old. And I remember mentioning to her at the time that I just felt this this deep envy of having discovered high earlier. I think I went to my first high workshop when I was 37, 38. And so I have to ask, what, what was originally the thing that brought you to that as an as a 18, 19-year-old uh, to find this community?
2: Well, you know, it, it was interesting because I had heard Stan Dale on the radio. In those days, Stan had a radio program uh, in the Bay Area where I lived.
0: And who is Stan Dale?
2: Who is Stan Dale? Stan Dale is the founder of the Human Awareness Institute. And Stan was a radio man from way back. Those who listened to old time radio would have heard him do who knows what evil lurks in the hearts of men, you know, the shadow and, and various other popular programs. And, uh, and, and he took an interest in psychology and ultimately ended up founding the Human Awareness Institute uh, as a place where people could learn about sexuality, about relationships. Um, and so, yeah, so Stan had a radio show in uh, Northern California, in San Francisco, and I used to listen to him sometimes, never thinking I would meet the guy, <laughs> but then a friend of mine went to one of his workshops, and when she came back from that weekend, she was so different in in, in such a positive way. She was very open. She was... Um, I guess that was the biggest thing, was just how open she was and and joyous. And I thought, and, and it wasn't like there was something wrong with her before. She was a lovely woman. But there was some kind of transformation that had taken place in her over a weekend. And I was intrigued and curious. And so shortly thereafter, I went to my first workshop. And it was profound. It, I, I wouldn't have imagined that that much change could be possible for a person in a weekend if i hadn't experienced it myself
0: Hmm. it is funny actually uh, a newfound openness tends to be a pretty common descriptor of uh, the kind of change people experience at a high workshop how would you describe that openness how does that show up what is that what does that mean to people
2: Mm, great question um I think it shows up in being more connected, being more willing to be more connected. It shows up in being more self-confident and more, and I don't mean in an arrogant way, but I mean in a deep way, having a deeper sense and a stronger sense of self and okayness within oneself. Some of the work that we do around body image contributes to that. A lot of people have negative stuff about their body or about sexuality. And a lot of that gets lifted. And because of that, when, when all of that is a kind of heaviness and when it gets lifted, then the experiences of, is of being much lighter, more available, more connected, um, and more confident and all of that. I think, um, is built into what I was just saying about openness.
0: Yeah. No, I, I resonate with that really, really strongly. And so you found High, you went to a workshop, uh, fast forward however many years, and now you are <laughs> a, uh, a uh, facilitator. How, how, did, how did you get drawn into that? Or why did you feel like that was an important thing for you to be doing?
2: I guess I had my sights on being a facilitator from early on. You know, I saw what Stan did and, and he was so brilliant at it. And shortly thereafter, we had a few more facilitators um, take it on. And I was a young man, you know, and, and I and I knew intuitively that it was too early for me to step into that role. I didn't think that people in their 40s, 50s and 60s would look at, you know, a 21 year old guy and think, oh, yeah, I'm going to, you know trust myself
0: there's wisdom there yeah
2: yeah (laughs) and so you know i always stayed connected to high i was a team member since 1983 and 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 uh so that it was always in my life but there but I, i went and did other things you know and when i was in my early 40s again this had been always in the back of my mind that i might like to facilitate at some point and I met my partner, Marcy Graham, and she had also been harboring this idea that you know, she might become a facilitator. And so we talked about it and we both decided to apply. And it's a long story about all that unwound after that, but at this point, both of us have been leading for you know, a fair number of years and, and it's so rich. You know? It's, um, to me, one of the biggest privileges in my life is the opportunity to sit in front of a room full of people and guide them through the miracle that high is.
0: So at some point you had this realization that you wanted to be involved, but that you didn't have the, the the maturity or gravitas or whatever it was that you felt you needed to do. What was the path that happened in between? <laughs>
2: Oh, how does one build gravitas, Jason? (laughs) So I don't have a formula for that, Haya. Um, I can tell you that some significant things happened in my life. And um, one of those was meeting a group who called themselves the UV family and later called themselves the New Roadmap Foundation. And this group of people were committed to living their lives in service and to um, putting more love into the world. And I learned a tremendous amount from them. And I got deeply involved in their lives and, and their organization. And it I feel like it helped grow me up. And one of the things I've held for a long time and I've had difficulty speaking about, is that my perception is that many people in our culture kind of get stuck in adolescence. Like there's a way that um, many of us fail to mature. And I, I think that is a failing of our culture. And many people have talked about this. If you read Bill Plotkin and his books, and if you you know talk to the people at the um, uh, new the New Warrior, uh, what am I trying to say? The Mankind Project. They're all saying the same thing, which is there is a common failure to fully develop as human beings. And I actually see this as the bigger stage of what's happening with humanity. And the, and, and it's a bit insidious because I think if you ask any person who's an adult, they'll say, yes, I'm a mature person. It's kind of like, um, privilege, you know, privilege. One of the, uh, um, salient aspects of privilege is that it tends to hide from those who have it. Yeah. And it, it usually requires someone else shining the light and saying, no, actually, please notice that you have this privilege. And I haven't found that illumination process yet for this thing I'm concerned about with uh, human maturity. But if you think about what's happening in the world and the places in which we're failing, to me, many of them are related to this question of have I done my own inner work? Have I um, taken myself from adolescence to putting my, um, my gifts into the world? And, and, and maybe one way of looking at it is um, going from that sense of my life being about me and what I want, to my life being about the community and the world. And what the world needs, what does humanity need and how can I contribute to that? Yeah. And to me, that's a a more mature orientation. And of course, you do need to take care of your own needs. I'm not saying that a person shouldn't. In fact, it's essential. But but there's a, a way in which the center of focus moves from being about me and my needs and wants and desires to. How can I contribute to the world? How can I make, how can I put more love into the world? How can I, you know, um, what, one way I think of this is I think that we human beings tend to get stuck in a kind of a pettiness. Like we're, like, like for example, racism. To think that one person has more or less value because of their race or ethnicity to me is, is ludicrous. And to think that people in one part of the world are more important or more valuable than people in another part of the world makes no sense. Yeah. And so how, how do we overcome this? Because I truly feel that, what's possible for human beings we can't even see from here as long as we're stuck in the um, kind of s- petty challenges that we're, we're that we're up against and I don't mean it's pettiness to be anti-racist. I mean it's it's there, there's a like there's a small-mindedness that keeps us stuck. You know, I look at war as a failure of imagination. Like, how could it possibly be that we think the best thing we can do is to kill other people when we have a conflict with them? Human conflict is inevitable. I want this, you want that, whatever. But what do we do next? And how do we approach it from a loving, centered place rather than an attacking place? You know, it's that... How do we go from a me or you world to a you and me world?
0: Yeah, absolutely. When when you talk about uh, maturity, at the beginning of this, I, I kind of perceived that that was a, a binary thing—you're either mature or not. But as you kept talking, I realized that maybe this is a growth—that there are different degrees of of maturity. Where where do you fall on that, and how do you how do you know whether or not you are uh, maturing into yourself? I suppose.
2: That is a great question. Um, So I I don't think it's binary. I don't think it's you are or you are not. I think every one of us has the places in which we're more mature and the places where we have more growing up to do or more uh, work to do on ourselves. So I I think it's a huge multifaceted spectrum. Um, Now, that said, there are in many uh, cultures rites of passage, where we say, okay, you're going, and it's often associated with doing something difficult and you go through this process and you come out the other side and we say, okay, now we're going to name you as an adult, you know, so that, that is a feature. And I also don't think that rite of passage magically makes a person mature, but I think there is something to that kind of a, a process that can be very affirming and also help a person to move along. I want to recommend a book. Yeah. And the book is Bill Plotkin's book called Nature and the Human Soul. And that book has a model for what he calls optimal human development. And it takes you through like all the different um, aspects of human development. And the places we tend to get stuck, and the and it also gives what he calls tasks, like things you can go back and do, to try to uh, catch up on the things that you may have missed, right? So if you missed something in an earlier stage of life, you're you're not just stuck. There are actually ways of working on yourself to help you to to deal with that.
0: Yeah. And I guess I mean, the thing that springs to mind as as rites of passage in in our universe is uh, is typically pretty binary, right you're you're either you're either a virgin or you are not. You either have a driving license or you are not. You are either twenty one years old or you are not. But I feel like emotional maturity comes in a very different spectrum, right You might be very good at conflict resolution on one hand, but you may not be able to. Express love, or you may be very good at um, teaching somebody something new, but you may not be that good at uh, performing a particular skill. And I feel like there's a lot of there's a lot of depth in that that I've never actually thought about before. Along how you can be very mature at, on one axis, uh, but very kind of immature or underdeveloped in another.
2: Yeah, I think that's really valid. I think that is. One of the things that makes it complex, one of the things that can lead us astray, actually, you know, thinking, well, I am 21. I've got my driver's license. um, I'm no longer a virgin. Right. So I can kind of check off some of the boxes. And but then I would ask, well, so, you know, how are your relationships with other people? And are you generous? And are, you know, do you do fault finding? You know, these are things that are um, and, and, and I think all of us, you know, have our moments that we're, that we're not on our best. But if you look at the overall picture, I think you can start to see, like, what am I what am I focused on? What am I using my life for? Uh, is it something bigger than myself or is it all about me?
0: Well, it's funny that you mention um, the focus piece, because. Uh, in all the episodes we've done so far, I don't think the topic of racism has come up that often. And in the conversation so far, you've mentioned it twice. Now, I know when we're recording this, so that makes sense to me. Uh, but I was just wanted to talk to you about why it is at the forefront of your mind right now and, and what, what this topic means to you.
2: Well, yes. Yeah. So obviously, to us, because we're recording it right now, it's during the time that the great protests are happening around the world in the wake of the murder of George Floyd. And so, yes, it's, I think, at the forefront of many people's minds. And as a white person, I know that I have had the privilege of not focusing on it for periods of my life. And I'm, uh, I'm regretful about that. I, 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 am sorry about that because when I lose focus on that as a white person, that's to the detriment of people of color. Yes. And so it is very much on my mind and you know, the, the world has any number of issues going on at any given time, but this has been an issue. Um, Maybe, maybe for the, all of humanity. I mean, I, I don't know exactly when racism started, but it started severely and early in this country with the enslavement of people from Africa. And I, I am so passionate about this because even though slavery has been illegal for 150-some years, um, more, more than that, actually, um It hasn't stopped. The racism hasn't stopped. The oppression of people of color and black people in particular um, is so alive and dangerous right now. And, And I say right now, but still, I guess I should say still through all the years, it continues to be present. And that's not okay with me. It's not okay with me that we live in a fractured society where I have many more privileges than another person just because of my race, because I happen to have white skin. And so uh, I'm adamant that we actually undergo real change in this country. I'm, I'm not super hopeful that we can actually eradicate racism. I suspect it will never happen. But what we can do is a lot in terms of um, training people, helping people be more compassionate, uh, changing laws, um, changing police departments. Uh, there's a tremendous amount we can do to make the world safer for Black people and other people of color. And that we need to do.
0: And I feel like there's there's two layers, well, there's many layers to this, but there's two in particular that spring to mind. One is the overt racism that is... Um, Resulting in people actually literally dying. And then there is another l- layer that is the deep systemic and institutionalized racism, where if you look at who makes the rules and who actually sets the, the, the themes and topics, um, that that's where you end up in really horrible situations of just voices not being heard or laws not being applied in ways that are equal or generational injustices that just keep kind of permeating for generations
2: well clearly that's true and the um the the laws have been set up this way the economy has been set up this way the it's structural injustice and that's the thing that i believe the protests are about right now is is making those fundamental changes to the structure. You know, I don't know if we can win over every heart and mind in the country, but if we can if we can fix the structures and keep them fixed, that would be an enormous shift. Yeah. And that's what that to me that's what's up right now.
0: I mean, I don't remember who it was, but somebody pointed out to me the other day that there is a very strange shift that has happened especially uh, in California now where in California, marijuana is now legal and you can buy it for recreational and medical use. But there's a lot of people who are still in prison today and primarily people of color for selling this before it was illegal. Yeah. And now during a lockdown, suddenly it's a it's an essential good. You know, those are some of the shops that are able to stay open. And the incredible injustice of that is is staggering.
2: It is. It is. And it, and it parallels what happened with cocaine. Um You know, where crack cocaine, which was prevalent in the black community, got a much more severe penalty than powder cocaine, which was prevalent in the white community. And so you you have huge numbers of uh, black people incarcerated for basically doing the same thing that the white people were doing and not getting incarcerated. That's structural injustice.
0: Absolutely. And I think that is exactly what I was was kind of hinting at. And I feel like that is an, um, that is something we can fix. I feel like that is, I mean, you have to be aware of it for starters. But, uh, you know, criminal justice reform and looking at the biases that are baked into the various systems is something that people who are in a position of power, who are willing to have those conversations, can start having those conversations and can start shifting that towards a resolution and an evening out.
2: Yes, exactly right. And that's one of the reasons I'm speaking up about it is to have those conversations. And I want to say a few things about it too, because I am not the world's foremost expert on this. You know, I've done my own reading and education, I've, you know, done the exercises and workshops and this sort of thing, but I am far from an expert on this. What I know is that as an ally, which I intend to be, I will sometimes make mistakes. I may be mis- making mistakes, even what I'm saying here. But a bigger mistake is to say nothing. So to me, there's a, an inherent risk in speaking up about it. I could make a mistake. I could offend somebody. But being silent me, is being apathetic, and I'm I'm not apathetic, and I don't want to be. Um, I don't want people who I love and care about. To perceive me as apathetic, because that that that's harmful, that's hurtful. Yeah. So, um, so yes, I'm I'm here. I'm having the conversation, uh, and just because I feel like the more places we have this conversation, the better.
0: Yeah. And to me, this is actually interesting because um, before I hit the record button, um, Jason and I were talking briefly, and this is this is an interview about Jason, right, and about how how you sh- uh, show up in the world, how you became the person you are today. And we ended up um, talking about racism because this is at the forefront of my mind. It's at the forefront of your mind. Yep. And yet here we are, two white dudes talking on a podcast about racism. And on the one hand, I think it's important to be able to have conversations. And on the other hand, I am, I- I am personally often struck down with how little I feel like I can actually do. Um, and I find that really challenging.
2: Well, there's actually a tremendous amount we can do. And, I, and to me, that's really encouraging. Uh, there are huge numbers of resource lists out there about how to better educate yourself. There are books and countless videos. Um, and uh, High, in fact, is in the process of putting together a resource list that should be out in probably a week or two after this podcast is launched uh, of, of how to educate yourself in this arena and things that you can do. And so uh, i'm I'm really encouraged actually about the huge amount that can be done and and must be done.
0: yeah, thank you for thank you for um for naming that. I think that's that's really important. I started this interview by asking what pronouns you use. And would you be open to saying a bit more about um, why you identify as uh, liking to use the they pronouns? And before you answer that, I also want to apologize for how clumsily I asked that question, uh, because I am just in real time discovering that that is actually a difficult question to ask.
2: mm Well, thank you for asking the question. And to me, it's a hugely important question because, you know, people look at me and say, there's a white man. And in one level of description, that's absolutely true. I'm not saying that's not the case. And I grew up in a... um, Well, how how do I say this? I, I, I grew up... I came into the world much more feminine than masculine, even though I had male body parts. And it was obvious, you know, we didn't have the rich lexicon we now have around gender. But I can tell you that when I was a kid growing up, I, I had two older brothers and then a sister and then me. And when I was a kid, frequently, my mother would say something like, well, what are the boys doing today? And by the boys, she meant my two brothers. Hmm. She did not mean me. So my experience as of myself as a gendered person, as a young person was much more feminine than masculine. And I wasn't interested in most of the boy things. I was interested more in the girl things, stereotypically girl things. I was, um, not a particularly physical kid. Um, in fact, uh, it was my experience as a kid was that I was small. I actually had a relatively small body for my age, most of the time growing up, and, uh, and that I was unsafe. Um, and so, as I grew older, uh, by the, you know by the time I was, say, 18, 19 years old, I felt like I was more toward the center of the gender spectrum. Um, I was wearing a uh, very flowy, more feminine clothing than pretty much any other male that I knew. Um, I, you know, my hair was long, which wasn't uncommon for, uh, men at, at that time. But, uh, but it, for me, it was not just that. It was, it, it felt right for my identity, for who I was and, as I've grown older, my sense of gender has drifted more toward what we think of as masculine. And so is, I haven't done that on purpose. It just seems like how I've evolved as a person. Uh, in our workshops, we often talk about gender fluidity. And for I think for most people who identify as being gender fluid, it's, it's more fluid day-to-day or moment-by-moment. For me, the fluidity has been over a lifetime, starting from a much more feminine place to, gra- to a more masculine place. But I, I say my pronouns are he, him, they, them, because I'm honoring that significant part of me that grew up feminine and that and that part of st- st- still is very much alive in me today even though it's not as outwardly expressed hmm.
0: thank you for um elucidating that so eloquently i think that is really i've heard i've heard you speak about some of this in the context of a work workshop before but i think th- it's really good to uh to pause with that for a moment because i think it's uh it is not that uncommon an experience. And, you know, it feels good to um, to hear you speak about this. Do you feel like, um, so your gen- gender identity has, has fluctuated uh, somewhat. Do you feel like your sexual identity has as well?
2: Um, hmm. I, maybe a little. My I, I think my sexual interest has always been mm, 70, 80 percent toward, uh, women and uh, 20, 30% towards men. Um, my, uh, that's in terms of my interests, my fantasy life, in terms of my actual sexuality, it's been more weighted toward women, although not entirely. So, um, and I, and I feel like that's been pretty consistent through my life in, in terms of my orientation, in terms of who I'm attracted to.
0: Yeah. I think for the for the context of the listeners, um, uh, if you don't
2: mind sharing, how, how old are you, Jason? I'm fifty nine. Yeah, I think it is. Um, you know, I mean, when when I was a young person and doing that kind of experimentation, of course, I was doing it with other people who were also experimenting. And yet I recognized that I was fairly far out of the mainstream for, for most of that. And, and that was okay with me. It was, you know, to me, you know, it's an incredible thing to be a human being. And to 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 truly be free as a as a person means all of the options are open and so often it looks as though something comes toward us and we either push back or we go along with and when we push back we call that rebellion and when we go along with with we call that compliance but if you'll notice now you're in a in a back and forth Rebellion or compliance to something else. And when you're in that kind of an interaction, you've lost the other 360 degrees of opportunity that was available before you started responding to that input. And so I'm so curious about the other 360 degrees. When I look at where we are as a species, I feel like. We have gone down a random tangent that happened to bring us here. Could have gone a million other ways, a billion other ways, but it went this way. Okay. But now that we're here, what choices do we have? Do we have to be at the effect of our history? Well, in some ways, yes, of course we do, because the history is the history. The state of the planet is the state of the planet. The extinctions that have occurred, the carbon loading in the atmosphere that have occurred, those are real, and yes, we are at the effect of those histories. And do we have a choice about increased militarization, for example? Do we have a choice about equality and equity? Do we have a choice about how we treat women, how we treat people of color, how we treat people from different parts of the world. Absolutely, we have a choice about that. And what it takes to change something is the right narrative, right? Hmm. Before the United States existed, there was no narrative called the United States. They created a very strong narrative that created this whole experiment that we now call the U.S you know the us happens to be in a territory here in north america but if the us were to crumble and disappear the territory would still be here it's not the same thing
0: absolutely yeah
2: so the so, so this is an idea this territory the, this and 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 i believe humanity could come up with some completely different narratives that would take us to places we choose to go rather than continuing down the random tangent that we started on.
0: Mm. I love the idea of uh, referring to this as an experiment. And I say this as somebody who recently became an American citizen, but with all experiments, it's like, how do you know whether the experiment was a success or a failure? Mm -hmm. Uh, (laughs) uh, That's uh, maybe a conversation for another day. but I think if, as long as we stay on a, a path of, of gradual improvement and uh, pushing for what we as a community want this experiment to be and which direction it goes, um, and that seems particularly timely now in a time where there is a tremendous amount of appetite for change and improvement. Um, I'm more hopeful now than I've been in a long time because there are finally some conversations happening.
2: Yes, exactly right. And, and this is our time, right? We are the people alive in this time. And so it's our opportunity to seize the narrative, to rewrite the narrative, to write the narrative of the future that we want to live into.
0: So Jason, you just brought something really interesting to the forefront and that's that we're at an inflection point. We're kind of at a moment where we get to choose who we want the future to be. Um, and kind of at the heart of that, comes values, you know, both our internal values, but also our values as human beings. Um, How do you feel about that?
2: Well, you know, you use the word values, and I want to just move that word a little bit and say value, in that when I think of human beings, I really value human beings. I think we are incredible creatures. And... Of course, the people who I know and love, I value more in a way because I know and love them personally. And as with all of us, most human beings on this planet, I will never meet. And no matter where those human beings are located, I value them equally, whether they live down the street from me or across the world from me, regardless of what culture they're in or what language they speak. To me, every human being, no matter where they are, has equal value. And for me, that's true not just geographically, geographically, but also temporally. That is to say, a person born 20 years ago has the same value for me as someone born 20 minutes ago, or 20 minutes from now, or 20 minutes into the future. And... What, and, and to me, that has kind of astonishing implications, because human beings like us have been around, oh, 50,000 years or so, maybe 100, depending on how you count. But, mm-hmm. you know, and in geologic time, that's a heartbeat. It's nothing. We've been around a very, very short period of time. Human beings If we keep the the world viable, if we don't blow ourselves up and destroy the ecosystem, we could live for hundreds of millions of years into the future. Yeah, the sun's going to get a little warmer and our distant ancestors may need to move the planet a little bit farther away. I'm sure they'll figure out how to do that. But really, for hundreds of millions of years, that is so much bigger a number than 50,000 years. And all of it turns on what we do right now because we are in the, the an early part of a mass extinction that is nearly certainly caused by human beings. And so what we're leaving to future generations is a radically diminished Earth. And I believe it's our responsibility to all of those future generations the millions and millions of generations to come, that we leave them an Earth every bit as rich and beautiful as the one that we were born into.
0: Yeah. I actually remember you talking about this once in the past, and it stuck with me enough that I uh, went in, away and did some research. And uh, it turns out there's been around 100 billion people in the world. And if we, are, if we consider that maybe we're at the halfway point, there's at least another 100 billion to come. And for that to be true, you're absolutely right. Um, we do need to change gears and, and lean into kindness in a way that we haven't traditionally as a as a species done very well. Yeah.
2: Well, thank you. Thank you. And and I, I'm heartened to hear that you went away and did some research. <laughs> feels great.
0: <laughs> well, it stuck with me because it was such an interesting thought experiment to to love everybody who's gone before us and everybody who is yet to come that is a uh, it is very easy to forget about the fourth dimension of time mm. i mean ultimately it's it's one of the it's one of the important ones
2: <laughs> <laughs> indeed it is indeed it is well thank you so much haya for having me here on the podcast and uh really enjoyed the conversation today
0: me too thank you so much well, that's all for this episode. Thank you for listening.
1: For more information about the Human Awareness Institute and to learn more about our workshops, please visit our website at hi.org. That's H-A-I dot org.
0: This show was produced by my wonderful co-host, Kate Gillespie,
1: And it was edited and co-produced by my equally delightful co-host, Haya Camps.
0: Our introduction music is called Dance With Me and it is performed and produced by our wonderful high workshop participant, Gypsy Jack van Bree.
1: It was a pleasure to have you with us. See you soon. Ciao.